0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I am Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the law closing in on Donald Trump as he made his way to New York today for tomorrow's arraignment in which he faces 34 counts in charges brought by the Manhattan DA following extensive grand jury testimony from witnesses. We'll discuss the embrace of lawlessness by the Republican Party who are placing Trump above the law while denigrating the rule of law. Joining us is Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College. He is a contributing opinion writer to The Guardian and his latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. We will discuss his article at The Guardian, Is the Long Arm of the Law Finally Catching Up to Trump and Putin? Then we'll examine the Republican strategy of weaponizing the judiciary in an end run around the executive and legislative branches by forum shopping to far-right, ideology-driven judges who strike down laws that are appealed to higher courts stacked with Trump-appointed ideologues. Joining us is Jonathan Zaslov, a professor of law at UCLA School of Law, where he teaches legal history and public policy. His recent work examines the influence of lawyers and legalism in U.S. international relations, the response of public institutions to social problems, and the role of ideology in framing policy responses. We will discuss his article at the American Prospect, how Biden can fight back against lawless judges, and what can be done to stop deliberately chosen Texas federal judges, one of whom struck down parts of the Affordable Care Act, and another about to outlaw nationwide a medical abortion drug approved by the FDA 22 years ago. Then finally we look into the results of the elections in Finland that dealt a blow to the youngest world leader who was considered an attractive fresh face in a club dominated by older men. Joining us to discuss the elections and Finland's entry into NATO on Tuesday is Derek Shearer, who served in the Clinton administration as an economics official in the Commerce Department and then as ambassador to Finland. He is currently a professor of diplomacy and world affairs at Occidental College and the director of the McKinnon Centre for Global Affairs at Occidental College. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our soundbites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and furor, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org/slash donate or at our tax-deductible nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfield Chair in Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College, and a contributing opinion writer to The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article of The Guardian, Is the Long Arm of the Law Finally Catching Up to Trump and Putin? Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Douglas.
1: Always a pleasure to talk with you, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And, uh, of course... Putin has been indicted by the International Criminal Court along with his person in charge of the health and safety of children, which is a sort of Orwellian notion. Given that she's been kidnapping thousands of Ukrainian children and putting them into Russian homes and having them having their national identity, you know, driven out of them by propaganda and brainwashing. So the whole thing is incredibly ugly, but. Since you teach law, I just wanted to ask you, Lawrence, how do you teach law in a country where one of the two major parties, the Republican Party, is embracing lawlessness and backing a lawless candidate for president, backing him to the hilt? And uh, you've also got some of the judges uh, that Trump has appointed who are also being lawless, like Kazmarek and and O'Connor down in Texas. So is this something that you're teaching the students, or is this something that your law students are concerned about?
1: Well, I mean you know it's a very good question, uh, Ian, because I really do think uh, a lot of professors who teach let's say political science or law that their whole way of teaching has kind of changed in the with the advent of trump I mean before Trump, you know, I basically thought that it was I had the responsibility of not uh, of of basically kind of remaining relatively neutral and trying to present, uh, two sides of the case and saying that there are people on good, of good faith on both sides of, you know, most political issues, not always, but in general. And uh, now, you know, we can't simply say that the United States is symmetrically polarized between the Democrats and the Republicans. The fact of the matter is large uh, portions of the Republican party are no longer behaving like a, a party that respects basic democratic, legal, and constitutional processes. Now, again, not all the Republican party, I mean, we still have people like Mitt Romney, obviously. Uh, but again, as you point out, large areas of the Republican party are not behaving like a party committed to uh, the American system. And, um, and that's something that I think, um, students and the public at large really need to absorb that that is the case.
0: So do you think that among the 34 counts, or perhaps in addition to the 34 counts, apparently that Trump is going to be arraigned before a judge in Manhattan and charged with by the Manhattan DA following the grand jury? Is it possible that his threats to the judge and threats to the district attorney, could be additional counts?
1: I don't think there'd be additional counts now, but I do probably, you know, I would anticipate the judge ordering some kind of gag order. And um, and uh, that would be really interesting to see how that plays out because we know that uh, one thing that uh, Donald Trump um, does not do is he does not hold his mouth. And um, as you point out, he's already made exceptionally inflammatory comments about, uh, the prosecutor and the judge. I mean, he's uh, described, um, i mean, besides these, uh, kind of endless litany of describing, um, Alvin Bragg as a, basically, a, a, um, a lapdog of George Soros, which I think also has a kind of real anti-Semitic undertone to it, that allegation. Uh, but, um, he's also this weekend called, uh, Bragg a psychopath and he's described the judge as a Trump hater. And uh, if he continues to make these kind of inflammatory remarks, um, you could imagine him being held in contempt, and you could also imagine perhaps even more serious charges following.
0: Well, he's apparently going to have a press conference when he gets back to Florida after his arraignment at 2.15 uh, local time in Manhattan tomorrow.
1: Yeah, that, that's right. It will be interesting to see what he says there, and he wants to make some kind of you know, general um uh, speech in the evening, and um, yeah, it'll be very interesting to hear what he has to say, because we know that his basic uh, legal strategy in the past, I mean, he's obviously no stranger to litigation, and he has a pretty tried and true strategy, which is to have his lawyers uh, engage in delay, delay, and delay, and for him to just attack, attack, and attack. And the attacks always go to the integrity. They always go to the integrity and the good faith of the people who are aligned against them.
0: So let's talk about your article at The Guardian, Lawrence Douglas, Is the Long Arm of the Law Finally Catching Up to Trump and Putin? Let's start with Putin, because there's an interesting uh, case now with the uh, bombing at a cafe in St. Petersburg, which indicates, at least to me, that it was done by the FSB, you know, the spin-off of the KGB, a nationalist military blogger uh, was blown up at a celebration where he's, he was awarded a trophy, which turned out to be uh, have explosives in it. They've got some young woman that uh, is an anti-war activist who's obviously taking the fall and seems to be obviously being, you know, <laughs> terrorized in custody. If my hunch is correct that Putin's getting rid of these or sending a signal to the far-right nationalists to shut up, which is also a signal to Prigozhin, who basically leads this group of ultra-nationalists who are constantly criticizing the Ministry of Defense and the Gerasimov and Shoigu and indirectly Putin himself for mismanaging the war. When you say you know the, the world is closing in, or the long arm of the law is closing in, how do you see It closing in on Putin, apart from the International Criminal Court, which obviously means that he can't travel except to countries like China and Iran. But is there any other reason to suggest that he's in trouble, maybe even at home?
1: Uh, You know, again... I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I think that has to do more. I mean, I would think that if he's in trouble at home, it wouldn't be so much from legal exposure. It would be political vulnerabilities. And, you know, to be honest, I don't have you a know, really kind of great insight into uh, the degree to which he is uh, suffering uh, domestically, that is suffering politically domestically as a result of this uh, absolutely misbegotten war that he continues to uh, pursue. Um, you know, there is the possibility of um, not simply a court in um, The Hague, that is the International Criminal Court, going after him. I mean, they, the United States recently, uh, last week, they announced that they would cooperate in the creation of some special tribunal in Ukraine that could, you know, potentially uh, try um, Putin for the crime of aggression. Uh, All this obviously remains highly speculative. I mean, there's no way that Putin is going to find himself on trial in Ukraine or in The Hague uh, if he remains in power. Um, But that said, you know, it's it's always a little premature to say that these people are going to escape with impunity. I remember back in the day when. Uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia was established in The Hague, and people said, oh, well, you know, all that tribunal is going to be able to reach are these kind of low fish. They're never going to get someone like uh, Radovan karadic or a Slobodan Milosevic, the former president of uh, uh, the- Serbia. And lo and behold, they did. They got both of them, and uh, they were able to ultimately bring both of them to trial. Milosevic, um, of course, died before trial ended. Karadzic is right now incarcerated. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to predict exactly what the uh, legal future of uh, Vladimir Putin holds.
0: Well, he's certainly going to have trouble going to G20 uh, meetings. Not, he, obviously, he's banned from the G7. But let's turn to uh, Trump, We don't know, of course, what's going to happen tomorrow at the arraignment. But my hunch again, Lawrence, is that it was so clear that Alvin Bragg, the DA, was very, very cautious. He initially didn't want to pursue the charges that were developed by the former DA, Cyrus Vance. He got a lot of flack for that. Two of his prosecutors quit uh, in protest. One wrote a book critical of Alvin Bragg. And then suddenly he turns around and then pursues the case that he didn't want to do earlier. So something clearly happened. What do you think happened?
1: Well, this is, I mean, this is a big question because we know, as you already pointed out, this is a multi-count indictment. And, um, and you know, a lot of people have observed that, well, going after Trump uh, for having paid uh, hush money to a porn star, Covering that up, um, it's really not that serious of a charge relative to the kind of wrongdoings that uh, Trump has uh, had a pattern of basically engaging in. But the multi-count indictment suggests that um, that there might be other things that uh, Trump is going to be indicted for. That um, you know, dealing with his uh, business practices. And I think that I would, would settle the nerves of many people who worry about the uh, strength of the case against Trump based on these um, hush money payments. I mean, I would like to see a stronger case than, than just that going forward.
0: So there are stronger cases in the pipeline, aren't there?
1: Georgia Absolutely. And Absolutely. the
0: special counsel.
1: Right. Of course. I mean, I was just focusing on the uh, on what could be in the indictment coming out of the Manhattan D.A. So it's possible, again, that even that case is stronger that it includes counts that we weren't uh, that we don't uh, know of at this uh, moment. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there are potentially other indictments that are going to follow on the heels. I mean, we know that uh, that he's being investigated. Um, by the Justice Department for both um, possible crimes associated with the uh, insurrection of um, January 6th and also with the, um, the failure to hand over classified material from um, his residence in Mar-a-Lago. And we also know that the uh, DA in Fulton County, uh, Georgia is pursuing a case um, and possible indictment uh, for um, criminal solicitation of election fraud in Georgia. those are very serious charges.
0: But back to the beginning question I asked you, Lawrence, which is the fact that the the Republican Party seems to be encouraging or accepting lawlessness. I mean, they are at this point basically saying that this is a political charge, that all of them, not just the New York DA, but... Fulton County and and Jack Smith. This is all politics. There's nothing to do with the law. I mean, at the same time, they're appointing such clearly partisan right-wing judges who are ruling on the basis of ideology, like Kazmarek and and the Supreme Court majority. So I just don't understand, you know, how... One now they can get away with it because it seems sort of, sort of so incredibly hypocritical. But on the other hand, it seems like a strategy that that they're politicizing the law and then accusing the Democrats of politicizing the law.
1: Well, I mean, in, in a sense, they've almost kind of been infected by the strategy of uh, Donald Trump. I mean, that's really been Donald Trump's strategy all along. He always accuses others of engaging in precisely the actions that he himself uh, is engaging in. And he's got a lot of traction from doing that. Um, You know, that said, I wouldn't necessarily associate his Supreme court um, uh, appointments with the, some of these other uh, federal judges that you talk about. I mean, the members of the Supreme court, you might have, uh, you know, very strong disagreements with the way they Um, decided some of their decisions this past uh, term. But on the other hand, I I don't see them as kind of buying into this this attack on the rule of law that Trump is uh, engaging in and that we find many other uh, Republicans um, echoing out of either cowardice or just uh, opportunism. I mean, it would be one thing for, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis to come along and say, um, yeah, I kind of question the the strength of this case that's being abroad against uh, Trump. It's another thing for him to call Alvin Bragg, echoing Trump, a Soros prosecutor. I mean, that's an absolutely disgraceful thing for uh, DeSantis to, um, to, uh, to say.
0: Right, and it's based upon a massive lie that Soros never gave a dime to Alvin Bragg. He gave money to Color for Change, which is an organization that encourages the election of African American and other minorities to public office. But exactly. it was, there was no, there was no connection at all between Alvin Bragg and George Soros.
1: No, no, no connection at all. And you repeat the same thing over and over again, and uh, you know these lies start to constitute their own uh, reality and uh, again we should recognize what a pernicious reality it is i mean trump has been using uh these phrases in his fundraisings about um the um the cabal of globalists who are aligned against me which sounds like um you know something plucked from the protocols of the um elders of zion you know this anti-semitic screed from the early part of the 20th century So, um, yeah, it's 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 absolutely disgraceful and it's disgraceful to see other Republicans um, uh, who obviously know better, uh, just kind of um, parroting or echoing or even amplifying what he's saying.
0: Well, Lawrence Douglas, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: It's always a pleasure to talk with you and thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you, Lawrence. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Douglas, who's the James Grossville Chair in Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College, and a contributing opinion writer to The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian, Is the Long Arm of the Law Finally Catching Up to Trump and Putin? We're going to take a restation back examining the Republican strategy of weaponizing the judiciary in an end run around the executive and legislative branches by forum shopping to far-right ideology-driven judges who strike down laws that are appealed to higher courts stacked with Trump-appointed ideologues. Mm-hmm. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jonathan Zasloff, who's a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law, where he teaches legal history and public policy. His recent work examines the influence of lawyers and legalism in U.S. international relations, the response of public institutions to social problems, and the role of ideology in framing policy responses. And he has an article, at The American Prospect, How Biden Can Fight Back Against Lawless Judges. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Zasloff.
2: Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Jonathan, teaching law has to be a little difficult nowadays because you mentioned in your article you're talking about lawless judges. Yeah. But we also have one of the two major parties in American politics, the Republican Party, is now fully backing Trump's lawlessness. So lawlessness seems to be in fashion.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is kind of a little weird to to think about being a legal scholar in a lawless society. I mean, we're not fully there yet, but uh, for my colleagues who teach constitutional law, I really feel sorry for them. What are they supposed to say? You know, well, the way the case will come out depends on the way that, you know, what Brett Kavanaugh has for breakfast this morning. Uh, It's it's not a... uh, uh, it's not a uh, uh, it's not an easy prospect. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just it's it's we, we all I can do is be as transparent and fair with my with my students and say, look, this is our best estimation about what's going on. But I can't promise you uh, or even whether precedent even matters at all, which is the, which was the entire problem uh, that I, I tried to or one of the problems that I tried to deal with in the piece.
0: Well, of course, forum shopping, which your piece talks about, I mean, you can go back further, surely, with Supreme Court shopping with the Heller decision and Citizens United. They would well, right. both... I mean,
2: go ahead. I'm sorry. I, 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 I was going to say,
0: they were both basically shopped to the Supreme Court.
2: Well, right. I mean, you, when you have a more conservative court, obviously that was going to be something that, you know, conservative litigators are going to try to do. But at least in that case, I mean, as 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 awful as some of those decisions were, um, it's really not even nearly as bad as what's going on in Texas now, where essentially because you have some very, very right-wing trial court judges and a very right-wing appeals court, what happens is that, that, that conservative litigators can basically just find, you know, essentially pick their judge who will give them what they want. We're in a position now where the... Question of of the so-called abortion pill, Prestone, where Ken Paxton, who's the, the Texas Attorney General, basically is filing a lawsuit in Amarillo, Texas, in the Texas Panhandle, to try to block the FDA's approval of this drug, which is a 20-year-old approval. But because there's only one federal judge in Amarillo, and he is a very, very conservative man, Matthew Kaczmarek, who is an anti-abortion, anti-LGBT activist, before he got on the bench, basically they filed a case in Amarillo, and Kaczmarek will issue a nationwide injunction uh, striking down whatever the administration wants to do, whether it's on the abortion pill, whether it's in their new rule saying that corporations can consider climate effects in fiduciary duties, whether it's any other thing. There's another judge in Fort Worth, a man named Reed O'Connor, who's one of only two judges there, and the other judge is also a very right-wing judge, where they sue, they get in front of Judge O'Connor, and just last week, he struck down a whole series of regulations that the Biden administration wrote on having to to cover preventative health care. It was completely lawless, but... They'll do it, and because the litigators can essentially pick their judge, they can go to the judge they want and get the decision they want. Uh, and it's it's a significant problem. It, it It's almost like the Democratic Party exception to, to Article Two of the Constitution. The Biden administration doesn't get to write any rules. And the same thing happened with the Obama administration.
0: And it's worth noting that the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, he, is himself under indictment for... Yeah. Corruption. He also, in the tradition of Donald Trump, uh, he also paid off a mistress with campaign money. Allegedly, so, as
2: far as no, I'm not sure, I don't know whether that's been absolutely fully demonstrated. But it wouldn't surprise me that. that it right.
0: Happened. Well, but the indictment for corruption is is languishing, right? It's,
2: yeah, and I, I that I can't I can't tell you why that has taken so long to to continue, uh, and why that why they have not moved forward with that uh it's a little a little a little beyond my bailiwick, but but uh it really i mean he was indicted many many years ago and uh now we're just sitting there waiting for the trial to move ahead uh he seems to have been able to have uh, have delayed it um and it, i think it's moving very slowly through texas courts it's now on the appeal docket of the court of criminal appeals but we're just waiting to see what's what's happening with it
0: so casmaric at any moment could literally rule that there's now a nationwide ban on this medical abortion pill, Memphis for Stone. Right. Uh, and he was obviously chosen for that very purpose. Exactly. Uh, he seems to be dragging it out. He was less than transparent about the hearings. He wouldn't publicize the hearings, right. you know, saying that it was all to do with security, but it looked as if it was to do with trying to shut the press out. These guys are very combative. I mean, is there any way to reach them? Is there anybody amongst their peers that can tell them that what they're doing is wrong just on the basis of the law? Or are they just simply ideologues?
2: Well, I, I think they're just ideologues. I mean, look, the, the only people that they would listen to are people who probably agree with what they're doing. I mean, think about it this way, that if the more that Kaczmarek does this, the more it's likely that he'll be elevated up to the appeals court the next time there is a Republican president. So it's, it's not only in, his, uh, in his, you know, his ideological interests, as he sees them, but probably in his political interests. And we saw this a few months ago with you know, Eileen Cannon, although there was a, a more sensible judge, just appeals court in, in Florida, uh, where you know, she you know, made all kinds of crazy rulings in favor of Donald Trump uh, on the classified documents case that were completely outrageous, but I think that it is almost certain uh, that the next time there's a Republican president, she will be elevated up to the 11th Circuit. And so I think we have the same situation with Kaczmarek. He's not a, he's not an old man. He's only in his 40s. Uh, so he has done what he needs to do to get elevated up. Uh, he only He's only 46 years old. Uh, so I, I find it very difficult to believe that. It is possible that even if he rules on this and the Justice Department appeals to the Fifth Circuit, that even the Fifth Circuit, which is unbelievably conservative uh will strike down his ruling on the grounds that it's just completely lawless but but I'd actually be rather skeptical of that uh because the the kinds of judges that are on the fifth circuit at least of the, the vast majority of them are almost as conservative as uh as as the Reed O'Connor uh, last year, or a couple of years ago, struck down large chunks of Obamacare uh, that even very conservative litigators said was completely lawless and, and sort of, uh, you know, the worst kind of judicial activism. And the Fifth Circuit upheld it. It, it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court struck it down. Um, but with something like Miff uh, Prestone, I'm not sure that they would. Uh, I'm not sure that they would take it. So I don't think that that's the way to, to deal with it.
0: And in terms of the of the latest move by Reed O'Connor to strike down the Affordable Care Act's requirements that health insurance companies cover preventative care, you're equally unsure about the fate of that one before the f- the fifth second.
2: Yeah, I, I think that there's a very good chance there's a very good chance that they, that they uphold that one too. The, uh, essentially they, they've got enough protection from their local appeals court, and they've shown their uh, ability and desire to do this all the time. So uh, I don't see any reason why I think that there's a very good chance that that stands. There there are other ways in which the administration might be able to deal with that. But but right now, they've been very passive uh, on it.
0: But Jonathan Zasloff, what you're describing here is the weaponization of the judicial branch. And it's being done in the service of the tyranny of the minority, of minority rule. When you have the legislative and the executive branch passing laws and then they are able to find the furthest right wing judge that they can find and uh, in a right wing circuit and mm-hmm. then shop it to the Supreme Court which is e- equally stacked with far right judges. So this is a Republican Party tactic, is it not? This is st- oh, yeah. we're mean, talking think, about strategy here, not not there's I mean, nothing I think, accidental about this.
2: Oh yeah, no, no 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 no. This is this is absolutely this is absolutely strategic. It, the Stephen Miller, the, the former nativist uh advisor to Donald Trump uh started his group America First Legal with this exact strategy uh Republican attorneys general are doing this with this exact strategy uh and the idea is it doesn't really matter what the legislature does it doesn't really matter uh what uh the what the executive does uh, we're going to find our judges to just to strike it down uh and so it that's that is that is part of their strategy um, so uh, this is this is not an accident. Um, uh, it's it's really an attempt to you know hem in the administration on all sides, and so far it's been very successful. And that's why you know I try to suggest in the piece. And there are other things that the administration needs to be more aggressive in trying to find out other ways around it. One of the strategies could conceivably be it's apart from what I'm writing is for the administration simply to say we're not going to listen to this guy, um, and then you could really have a crisis on your hands. Um, but uh, they can't be in the position of simply. Uh, sitting back and passively hoping that Matthew Kaczmarek or Reed O'Connor uh, will be nicer to them, because, uh, you know, you, if, if, if you let a bully continue to do this, uh, it's uh, they're, they're going to keep doing it.
0: Well, explore that further, then, I wanted to talk about your other suggestion, which is that the Biden administration could sue first using the Declaratory Judgment Act of the 1930s. But first, follow through on the idea that they could just ignore Casmaric and O'Connor.
2: Oh, I don't think that they could do it legally. I mean, there are other strategies too. But you know, uh, Ron Wyden, who's a senator from Oregon on the the abortion pill case, says they should just ignore it. And that the the you know there, there's an infamous position from President Jackson, Andrew Jackson, supposedly Ronald Trump, Donald Trump's uh, hero, who when John Marshall told him that he couldn't uh, he couldn't exile the Cherokee from Georgia to Oklahoma, you know, infamously. Said uh, Judge Mar- Justice Marshall has made his has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Um, I think that, that they might say that either this is illegitimate or uh, they might say, well, we're going to uh, appeal this in some way, or uh, they'll simply uh, the FDA simply will not withdraw uh, its its approval of the drug. Um, but that that could be a little bit tougher because then you would have O'Connor and a Kassmerik holding people in contempt. Uh, but again, uh, how are you going to get them there to hold them in contempt? I mean, it's, uh, and there will be other lawsuits concerning that. I, I think that uh, what they're going to have to do is raise the stakes, uh, and that that could be part of it. And, you know, we think that this decision is lawless, and we're simply not going to uh, we're simply not going to adhere to it. And we'll start we'll start uh, distributing the abortion pill. Um, that would be a raising of the stakes, but uh, that's what. Conservatives pioneered in the 1960s with massive resistance to civil rights. So, uh, you know, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. I think there are other better strategies in the in the in the in the short term. But with with the abortion pill case, it's already started. So, I'm not sure that I I'm not sure the declaratory judgment act would work in that case.
0: Well, there's also you know the tactics being used by Senator Tommy Turboville, who no. is the least qualified. Yeah, Numberly yeah, non- Senate who the says history. I'm just
2: not gonna I'm not going to uh I'm gonna slow down all of the appointees until you back off on these policies. That's sort of standard stuff. Uh that's sort of standard I mean it's it's uh it's a little ridiculous in a lot of ways, but that's sort of standard stuff. But to have a, a single district court judge decide that, you know, the voters might have elected Joe Joe Biden, but actually I'm the president of the United States is not.
1: Um,
0: Well, I bring it up though. I bring it up though, Jonathan, just to point out that again, the right, far right, are very aggressive and very effective, and the Biden administration, the Democrats, appear to be passive in the face of this zealotry.
2: Certainly, the Justice Department has been. Uh, I think the Justice Department has been very passive. They're they're kind of hoping that this won't happen or hoping that somehow they'll be able to take it to the Fifth Circuit. or ho- I mean, look, in O'Connor's decision concerning the Affordable Care Act a couple of years ago, eventually the Supreme Court came around and struck down the opinion because it was so egregious. But a lot of other ones they haven't. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think that the the Justice Department is let's go through the process and eventually we'll win it. Um, I'm more of a pessimist on that. Uh there was a terrible decision about a year and a half ago a judge in in Louisiana that struck down the the uh uh Biden administration's social cost of carbon rule before it was even a rule. Uh that the justice department took to the fifth circuit and the fifth circuit overturned the justice the the trial judge's decision. So it's it's quite possible uh, while they've been passive, you know, it it has not caused too much damage yet, but I think with um, Mifeprestone and with some of these other ACA rulings, I don't think they're going to get what they want out of the Fifth Circuit, and it's, uh, I would not count on the Supreme Court to bail them out.
0: So let's, in the last couple of minutes, then, Jonathan, talk about one of your prescriptions, which is for the administration to sue first using the Declaratory Judgment Act yeah. of the 1930s.
2: The uh, the idea is, I mean, declaratory judgments are a standard part of law. Uh, the, the The statute was... Uh, written in the nineteen thirties uh... and basically it is designed for to to combat legal uncertainty uh... nowadays it's used mostly in cases of intellectual property i have a patent i know somebody is going to sue me one day Uh, saying that I'm infringing on their patent, so I sue first and try to get a declaration uh, that I am not infringing anybody's patent. That's pretty standard practice. What I'm saying is that the administration, when they issue a rule that they have reason to believe is going to be challenged, um, usually on things concerning immigration, things concerning abortion, things concerning the environment, they should sue in the District of Columbia, which obviously is where the government is held, to get a declaration that the that the rule is legal and the reason why this is important uh, not only because they get a declaration the rule is legal is because uh, essentially if the rule has already been tried and already been stated to be legal uh, a judge down in Texas can't grab jurisdiction the the hearings concerning this uh, this uh, regulation are already in uh, proceedings in the District of Columbia um, and furthermore, if Kassmerich or O'Connor then go ahead and say, uh, well, we're going to have our own hearings on it, the administration can say, we've already got a declaration that this thing is legal. We are following the rule in the District of Columbia where we are, uh, and, it, and there it would be a case it really doesn't matter what O'Connor and Kassmerich say. We have a ruling from a judge in D.C. that says that it's legal. And remember, it doesn't have to be a particularly liberal judge. It's just to be a judge who isn't a nutcase. Um, so that's the, that was the, the, the theory behind this. It's not foolproof. Sometimes judges won't hear these cases because they'll say, well, nobody sued you yet, so you don't have a controversy. There's no case yet. And federal courts aren't allowed to hear a case if there isn't a controversy yet. So the, the administration would have to show some evidence that they were about to be sued or that they were about to be challenged. Um, and that's kind of discretionary. It's sort of a totality of the circumstances test. But if you're going to issue a regulation in the United States, you do a proposed regulation, and usually what will happen is, and usually what has to happen is, the people who don't like the regulation will protest for after the proposed regulation is issued. And they'll say, this is wrong, this is bad, this is illegal, this is unconstitutional. And they'll protest it in the rulemaking proceedings. So then the administration can go to the district court in D.C. and say, look, They've already protested this rule. We know that they're going to sue. So we're suing now to get jurisdiction here. Will that always work? No, but I think that sometimes it will.
0: Right. And and the ruling on Riff for Stone happened 22 years ago. So the evidence is pretty out there. No, I wish they would have been preemptive in this case. And I thank you for joining us, Jonathan. I appreciate it.
2: Well, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Zasloff, who is a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law, where he teaches legal history and public policy. His recent work examines the influence of lawyers and legalism in U.S. international relations, the response of public institutions to social problems, and the role of ideology in framing policy responses. And he has an article at the American Prospect, How Biden Can Fight Back Against Lawless Judges we can take a brief station break we're back looking into the results of the elections in Finland that dealt a blow to the youngest world leader who was considered an attractive fresh face in a club dominated by older men.
3: Yes, yeah, some is good and some is bad.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, is Derek Shearer, who served in the Clinton administration as an economics official in the Commerce Department and then as ambassador to Finland. He's currently a professor of diplomacy and world affairs at Occidental College and a director of the McKinnon Center for Global Affairs at Occidental College. Welcome to Background Briefing, Derek Shearer. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, there was an election over the weekend in uh, Finland, and the attractive, young, energetic, youngest woman leader in the world, Sana Marin, uh, lost her re-election. So is this a case of lively, interesting young women losing out to boring old men?
4: I don't think so. I mean, you know, the funny thing about Finns is that they generally don't vote on personalities. And, again, this wasn't just a one-up versus a one-up. It's a parliamentary election where you're not actually voting for the leader. You're voting for candidates in the party. And what happened was you ended up with three parties almost – tied. The National Center Party, with headed by the boring old man, as you said, got around 21%. The right-wing nationalist party, the True Finns, got around 20%. And uh, the Social Democrats, led by the attractive young 34-year-old, got like 19-point-something percent. And then there are a host of other parties, including the Greens, the Left Alliance, the Swedish-speaking party. So as you can see, I mean, no one party really exceeded a fifth of the population in voting. So we can talk about what it means or what the effects would be, but I don't see it as a kind of personal rebuke of a young woman. It was much more a vote about economic and domestic policy.
0: So those early reports of her having a good time at that disco with her friends and then later being forced to have a drug test to show that she wasn't having too much of a good time or, or was in an altered state, that seemed to be forced on her by a kind of conservative backlash. So at least to that extent, it seems that the Finns might have been influenced in some way of, of wanting you know, a more sort of predictable kind of person as opposed to
4: yeah as mm-hmm. i say maybe on the margins but when as you just look at the way i spelled out the votes
3: right, i mean right.
4: one one can say that uh you know finland like most nordic societies slightly looks down upon young people having fun <laughs> and so uh I mean, it was sort of silly at the time, and I still think it's silly, that she got criticized. I mean, if she'd been married and had two kids, or like the then-prime minister, young Prime Minister Zealand had a child, well, almost while she was in office, um, you know, I would just wouldn't make too much of it, Ian, frankly. I mean, in the, sch- in, the sch- in scheme of things, it's fun to talk about and. Report on, but usually the Finns vote the parties based on what they view their self interest is, their sociology, their backgrounds.
0: well, let's make it clear now that this in no way affects Finland joining NATO tomorrow Tuesday, right?
4: No, I mean it's not that's a done deal um the public opinion in favor of joining NATO is over 70%. It shifted dramatically, you know, more than a year ago in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In fact, it's shifted from like 30% in favor to almost 70% in a couple of months because of the brutality of the invasion. And the National Center Party that will try to form the government and have the prime minister from their party is supporting NATO membership. So that's a done Deal, And I would say that's a consensus. Now, the right-wing true Finns didn't say they would leave NATO either. They're more critical of the EU, and of course, they take a kind of right-wing populist view of domestic politics at home. But the Russians are not popular. Unlike some right-wing populist parties in Europe that do have relations with the Russians, Finns know the Russians from their long history, and they're not loved.
0: So, this has obviously happened uh, because Turkey withdrew its objections, and as did Hungary. And, interestingly enough, Hungary, which Orbán has been very much on Putin's side, Putin uh, issued a statement saying that Hungary was no longer a friend, but meanwhile, both Hungary and Turkey are blocking Sweden, are they not?
4: Yes. And again, both, I would say, for more for domestic reasons. And I think over time they'll drop it. I mean, in Turkey's case, there's going to be national elections in May. And the head of Turkey, Erdogan, has been using the Kurdish issue, has been used in the past uh, for domestic Turkish politics. And because they're are a lot of Kurdish immigrants in Sweden, some of whom have been very politically active. Um, he's called at that issue vis-a-vis Sweden. Um, I think he'll drop the complaints, assuming he wins significantly in May. Um, what Oban in Hungary has said is that Sweden had said mean things about Hungary, that it had criticized uh, Hungary's illiberal democracy some of the moves that obama and his followers have made to repress opposition control the press close the european university that had been headquartered in budapest those so there you know it was a, an excuse for them to say we're not going to vote for sweden at this time i'm i'm betting that both of those will change the us talks to both of those countries, and particularly in Turkey's case, besides the domestic politics, they want things. You know, they'll trade votes for weapons and other things.
0: Derek, why do you think that Erdogan will win? I mean, he's definitely mishandled uh, the massive earthquakes and and the tardy response to this enormous humanitarian catastrophe.
4: I mean, I'm not certain, but he exercises, not unlike Obon in Hungary, you know, control and influence in the electoral process. Um, he has the l- highest profile and the most money. And there, I couldn't tell you, for example, who the opposition leader in Turkey is running against him. And I tend to follow, you know, sure.
0: Well, Some of them are in jail, aren't they?
4: Well, I mean, that's just saying, there is no, it's not like we can say, oh, he is running against X, who's clearly a reformer, a good guy, relatively speaking. Um, you know, he's, Erdogan has managed to clear the field of op- opponents, just as Oban has done, I mean, just as Modi is doing in India.
0: So, back to Finland, the Finns party, the Populist party, they have a very hard line on immigration, right? How, yeah. how, do they, how would they compare to, you know, the alternative for Deutschland in Germany and the right-wing government in Sweden, which got the most votes in the last election?
4: Well, my, you know, I'm not a super expert on this, but I mean, like the alternatives in Germany have toyed around with Putin and the Russians, um, and the true Finns have not been doing that. Um, Again, in Finnish style, even though they're considered right-wing populists and they're not in favor of immigration, they're not as extreme as either of those two parties you mentioned. And also, interestingly enough, they are for the Finnish welfare state. They just want to focus it on what they view as true Finns, working class Finns, not help out immigrants or, you know, help out the EU and causes. So they're a kind of interesting version of populism that you could say is progressive on some domestic policy issues, but on the rest of the world it wants to be semi-isolated.
0: So in terms of Finland joining NATO, which will happen tomorrow, Tuesday... That's a, what, about a 1,300-kilometer border now? That yes, with, with th- Russia. And with for Russia. a while
4: it had been the, when I was ambassador and they voted to join the EU, they became the EU's border with Russia. And now um, they're the longest border with Russia as NATO. So, and of course, the Finns never disbanded, you know, their army or cut back military spending during the end of the Cold War, they kept universal conscription. So they have a long tradition of raising a people's army almost at a moment's notice. And uh, just about everyone has served at least a year. It's required if you're a citizen. And they of course, been using... And working with us weapons. When I was ambassador, they bought the F 18 Hornet, and they've just recently purchased now a much upgraded fighter. They've been involved in training exercises with NATO as part of Partnership for Peace, which we started when I was ambassador. And of course, the Russians know them well as tough fighters who had repelled a Russian invasion back in the Winter War when Stalin tried to. You know, Stalin tried to do in Finland what he also, what Putin tried to do in Ukraine. Stalin had picked uh, Finn, who was living in Moscow, to become the new leader of Finland and this fake government that he was going to create as soon as they crossed the borders and swept away the Finnish army. And Putin was going to put in a puppet government as soon as he killed or got rid of Zelensky and. Kiev, and it, of course, didn't happen in either case.
0: Well, the Finns did, of course, surprise, just as I guess the Ukrainians have surprised the Russians back in 1939. But now, of course, Russia is making noises about sending its divisions up there now and bolstering its defenses along that border.
4: So- well, that's just... I mean, you know, Putin makes noises about a lot of things. It's, I. Nobody can actually... See reasonable circumstances under which he would get in any kind of shooting war with Finland now that it's a NATO member. I mean, that's that's serious World War Three. I mean, we are already um, in a kind of state of hybrid war with Russia, and Russia made this quite clear in their recent doctrine, which they announced publicly that you know the West is the enemy. Um, trying to encircle it and trying to overthrow it and they're resisting but they have been engaging in various forms of warfare especially cyber warfare and you know the classic examples of their hacking into our election um, for a long time and so this hasn't really changed things other than it's viewed as a defeat for Putin, because now he's got a well-armed, very good, tough group of fighters on his border, which he didn't have before, he said, you know, and he hadn't planned on that. He thought he'd just quickly roll into Ukraine, as you know.
0: But he's also got an incredibly good military a raid against him, uh, with, as you mentioned, the Finnish armed forces are quite formidable. They have the most powerful arsenal of artillery pieces in Western Europe, and that's exactly what is being used now in the war in Ukraine. Russia, of course, has a preponderance of artillery tubes and enormous amount of ammunition, which they burn through thirty thousand howitzer rounds per day. Now they're trying to get more from North Korea in exchange for food. Is there any indication, uh, Derek, that the Finns are helping out the uh, Ukrainians with artillery pieces? Because uh, the Ukrainians, we keep promising them stuff, and the stuff, that, a lot of the stuff that the U.S. are delivering is junk, doesn't work. No,
4: um, I think I think you're exa- exaggerating. And we've we've given them a lot of assistance. And a lot of things that are helping. There's, you know, and so is Western Europe, and Finland has been supportive of that through the EU. I don't know what the next plans would be, frankly, about Finnish artillery or who would replace that for the Finns because you don't want to reduce the strength of their army on the Russian border either.
0: Right. Well, just then in the last couple of minutes, Derek Shearer. What about uh, Sweden then? The Swedes are now saying they'd like to join NATO by July, which is the NATO summit, but they're sort of hedging, saying, well, it may not happen. What do you think is likely to happen? I mean, you mentioned earlier that the US is probably going to weigh in on on Turkey, and maybe if Erdogan wins in May, then he'll want to make a deal, or even before then, I guess. But then, on the other hand, Orbán... Is it tougher not to crack? He's hoping, I imagine, that uh, Trump will come back.
4: Well, yes. I mean, that's one of the things that is troubling about what's going to happen in the future is that, you know, countries, some of them um, would be very pleased to have Trump come back. Others, as certainly Finland and Sweden and many of our other close friends, are worried for other reasons, you know, how bad it would be if it happened. But I think in Turkey's case, I mean, the best guess is they're going to say yes after the May elections, assuming Erdogan, you know, wins. I can't predict what Oban's going to do to be, tell you, I just, I just don't know. He's probably being pressured by Putin. But at the end of the day, you know, I think Sweden will become a member of NATO, whether it's this year or next year. It's not that bad big a deal, I mean, in terms of what we're talking about militarily or politically. Um, it'll, it'll happen. And the fact that the Finns are in is the most significant thing.
0: Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Derek Shearer. I appreciate it.
4: Thank you, Ian. Have a good day. And uh, as I say, it was an exciting Friday when I saw the Turkish vote in favor of Finland and the indictment of Donald Trump. Made my weekend.
0: <laughs> well, today all we've seen on TV is pictures of his plane landing at LaGuardia and, and his limos heading into Trump Tower. So I guess everybody's waiting with bated breath for what happens tomorrow.
4: And the end after. It's an ongoing show. At a, and a, and a topic of another show with you, Ian, another time.
0: I agree, but it, it's a little bit like reading the National Enquirer. Frankly, it's not not what I think our politics should be about. Well,
4: yes, that's true too. But the, you know, I used to say we're we're the reason why we don't have social democracy in the U.S. The way they have Swedish social democracy is not enough Swedes, <laughs> but uh, there are lots of other reasons too.
0: Well, again, I've been speaking with Derek Shearer, who served in the Clinton administration as an economics official in the Commerce Department and then as ambassador to Finland. He's currently a professor of diplomacy and world affairs at Occidental College and the director of the McKinnon Centre for Global Affairs at Occidental College. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The
3: guy that next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half.